Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest General Hugs Edition. It's Wednesday, December 20th, 2017. On today's show, The Last Jedi, it's the latest journey into the Star Wars cinematic universe. It is beloved by critics. It's a box office smash, so why is it also somewhat controversial? And then the live app-based game HQ Trivia is a huge hit. It is addictive and fun, and we are going to discuss it with Slate's own Forrest Wickman. And finally, what makes a meme into a meme, and how and why did they live and die? According to what principle? A cult principle. I want to know. Um... Joining me today is Slate's uh, editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. We're going to figure it out. Memes explain forever. And uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Hello. And then, of course, uh, Dana Stevens is uh, Slate's film critic. Hey, Steve. I feel like I should respond with a meme of some kind. But memes are brains. visual. You can't just project them. <laughs> I can't just describe a dog sitting in a fiery cafe. I like all of our three topics should be the boyfriend and the girlfriend and the attractive girl he's looking at. Like, we have three topics uh, every week. You just week. stole That's my joke, I was going to say. <laughs> All right, should we dig right in? Let's. The Last Jedi is the latest Star Wars movie, of course. Uh, it uh, brings back a fascist empire and a ragtag resistance uh, as led by Daisy Ridley, Oscar Isaac, John Boyega against Adam Driver, who's on the dark side. It unites the younger generation with veterans Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher, of course, from the original trilogy. This one, however, has a really interesting twist. It's written and directed by Ryan Johnson, he of Looper and Breaking Bad fame. 
And that raises a question, right? What direction would a unique individual auteurist sensibility take what is perhaps, along with Harry Potter, maybe the most beloved public intellectual property in uh, all of fandom? Uh, People have had a mixed reaction, but we'll discuss after we listen to a clip. And as I'm told, we only have the trailer available for a clip. Something inside me is awake. I won't let them win! Darkness rises and light to meet it. BBA, punch it! (laughs) I think that that conveys the movie. Uh, Dana, um, here's the thing about Star Wars, right? People don't watch it. They don't evaluate it. They don't think about it critically. They live it. Right. I mean, it, 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 they enter it. Um, it, it immerses them. It's, it's, it's very hard to judge any installment in this franchise just as a movie, but why don't we start by trying to at least a little bit? Did you like this one? Yes, I liked it a lot. I still have yet to see it a second time, which I want to now. And I can't say that I've had that feeling about any Star Wars movie of my lifetime, including the ones that came out when I was a kid and should have been there ideal demographic audience. Um, So I think you're right that you cannot watch Star Wars without inscribing yourself into the cultural mythos of Star Wars. But I also think that this movie sets itself the task in a way that maybe The Force Awakens, the 2015 installment directed by J.J. Abrams, didn't, of drawing in people who aren't necessarily hardcore Star Wars fandom people, which maybe is why this backlash that we'll talk about is coming more from the historical hardcore fandom. I sort of felt like, as I said in the spoiler special podcast I recorded after seeing this movie, that it it energized the Star Wars universe in a way for me that it had never been before, which doesn't mean I think it's a perfect movie that couldn't have any kinks ironed out of it, but that it gave me some flicker of enthusiasm that made me see why this franchise matters so much to people. How, wh- why do you think this franchise matters so much to people? <laughs> Explain it to me. Well, I mean, I think a big part of it for me is just that unlike so many of the franchise installments that have become really the bread and butter of our mass culture in the past 20 years or whatever we're going to market, this movie has fun and makes light of the Star Wars universe in some ways without being fourth wall breaking and snarkily mocking about it. I feel like it has the right balance of sincerity and enthusiasm and also sort of genuine wit and actual funny jokes. Um, And also, of course, which is worth talking about on its own and is also part of what's generating the backlash, I think, it also just is a more diverse, inclusive, representative universe of different galaxy denizens than the traditionally whiter and maler Star Wars of the George Lucas days. So it is great that there's two, three, four important female characters in this movie who are very powerful, who often have military rank higher than the male characters, and that there's just sort of a genuine balance of power and parody and dialogue among these characters rather than the, I think, somewhat starker divisions of good guys, bad guys that happened in the earlier installments. Yeah, um, this one definitely, Julia, has some matriarchal verve to it um, that some of the uh, fanboys are are maybe reacting against. Uh, Remind me what your relationship to this franchise uh, has been historically, and and then tell me what you thought of this one. My relationship to this franchise historically has been tenuous. I did not grow up watching the movies. I was shown all of them that existed in one sitting my senior year of high school, so I did one time. By some all. evangelizing friend who yes, was a fan? Yes, yes, yes. A, a lovely evangelizing friend 
who, you know, had probably had each of them graven on the back of his eyeballs because he'd seen them so many times. Uh, I think I saw the first of the pre-threequels, not the other two. And I enjoyed... Same here. After you see The Phantom Menace, why are you going to keep punishing yourself? And then I enjoyed The Force Awakens because I love J.J. Abrams and I felt like it was similar to what he did with the Star Trek movie, which is just very satisfactorily, like, deliver the key elements in a way that didn't add up to much or have much enduring impact, but was a really fun ride. This movie is messier and realer and felt a little bit less to me like it was just you know, doing the dance routine in a very zazzy way. It felt more earnest and questing and the emotional weight of what each character was going through was given a little bit more space and room. And then there were so many characters and they were going through so much that the movie gets a little bit shaggy and baggy at points, I think. But um, the combination of really spending time with uh, how Luke Skywalker feels about the current situation, you know, what Ray Daisy Ridley's emotional uncertainty and quest is about this power that she has. Like, you, you there's such schlockadoo plot lines, right? You, it's, it's <laughs> like the whole thing is so goofy, kind of. It's so essential. It's so, uh, am I good or evil? Will I find the power within? Like, it's, you just kind of have to go for it. And Daisy Ridley in particular is just great at like screaming in agony as she <laughs> twists in the sky and being like, ah, like grunting as she fights to maintain goodness. Like there's there's just no wry winking hesitancy about the fundamental core of like, can the good guys beat the bad guys? Yeah, the moral stakes feel really high. And even though there's no way that this was scripted in any way having to do with the Trump administration, because it's been in production for so long, I think the script was already finished months before Trump was even elected. It does have this elemental force. I mean, the resistance is what the, you know, the uprising is called. And the first order is this sort of authoritarian, top-down government that feels like something that we are all gearing up to struggle against. So even though this movie doesn't consciously strain for contemporaneous meaning, it's impossible not to feel it in that way. On the one hand, making a Star Wars movie is a utterly thankful task, right? It's it's winning the freaking lottery because you're going to put a movie for the public that's inevitably going to make a billion-dollar global box office. Everyone's going to talk about it. It's culturally relevant almost no matter what its specific contents are. On the other hand, it's a completely thankless task because it's so mythic. It's so overloaded. It's so woven into the psyches of moviegoers. Sort of every person on the planet probably has some relationship to Star Wars. It's almost like being asked every five years to write a new Beatles song or something. I mean, it's it, it you you can't help but get it right and make a ton of money and be famous and 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 at least beloved in some quarters you can't help but get it wrong and i'm always interested in what that balance is and to whom and why and and someone has pointed out quite astutely that how you feel about the star star wars franchise is completely a function of which star wars you grew up with and to lay my cards on the table you know i saw the original star wars in eighth grade in the movie theater nine times and it was (laughs) a (laughs) mind-blowing theatrical experience right like you live with it is true that i will live with luke skywalker i mean i there is a middle-aged part of me that couldn't care less about you know uh, this 
franchise continuing and there's just another part of me that's you know a 10 or 14 or whatever it was year old kid 13 year old kid who's like holy shit like there's another movie with luke skywalker in it so i mean to me the heart of the this movie there's a lot of frenetic action that i find you know kind of jank like my, my old man nerves are easily jangled now but there's another part of me that just totally responds to the um Daisy Ridley, Mark Hamill thing, in part because Mark Hamill famously walked into a giant pile of cocaine after he became world famous from the first trilogy and then disappeared. And so you're drawing on what someone my age, certainly, and probably a lot of people think of as the real Mark Hamill's struggle, lifelong struggle to deal with the legacy of having been the most refreshing action hero in the most popular movie of all time, right? And then and then living with it forever in semi-wilderness uh, obscurity. And and that's emotionally true for him as a human being. It's emotionally true for the audience that's familiar with that struggle. And therefore, it is emotionally true at the heart of this fucking movie. Like, like are you going to play Luke Skywalker again is almost the central question of the film. And then around that, Ryan Johnson's done something very clever and very astute, which is what are we all going to do with the emotional baggage of this thing that's bigger than any of us? Is that an inspirational fact or a completely oppressive fact? And he plays with both possibilities. And this, I think, Dana, is what's pissed off the fan base is that he, in many respects, is saying, guys, we have to lighten up or this thing is going to drown us in portentousness. It is never going to be new and interesting, which was the defining fact of the first one. I want to get to the fan response in a moment because I think there's a couple interesting questions to raise about it. But before we do, I just want to mention a couple of the visual touches and fresh things that Ryan Johnson adds that I think are really impressive. And it is long. It's like two and a half hours. And I was sort of struck. I found myself toggling watching the movie between uh, being a Star Wars skeptic and being like, okay, it's hitting all the beats. Like, uh, they got to sneak into the gigantic enemy ship and... Uh, there's a lot of ships against a starry background and oh gosh, they got to get a thing and they got to go to like a wacky planet with zany music to get the thing or the person, I guess, in this case. Oh, there's a there's a chase where there's one fighter craft going through a narrow chasm that's crisscrossed with horizontal stalag and stalactites and mites uh, and all of the enemy ships that follow are worse flyers and they crash into all of them like all of those scenes are in all of the movies Mm. and they just do it again but different but the same and those were all executed fine and they sort of have to be in there i guess it's like the stations of the of the millennium falcon or something but the there were a couple moments that were just startling and novel um and visually really striking there's a moment where ray is questing for her own past and identity. She's an orphan. And the question of her parentage is raised in The Force Awakens and grappled with in this film. But she ends up in kind of this very eerie, like Bob Fosse on acid self-questing segment that I thought was so emotionally powerful and striking and just Fresh and you mean when she sees herself in the infinitely regressing mirrors? Yeah, but then it sort of becomes a dance routine with herself. Like the whole thing is beautiful and powerful and unusual and crazy and strange, and I loved it. But can I say something about the Luke stuff in response to Steve's speech yeah. that I think is an important ideological difference in this movie from, I think, any Star Wars movie that's come before, which is that 
for the first time, there's there's something of an, an open admission from Luke and other characters that the Force has failed, that this, you know, magical power for good that has united the good guys in this series from time immemorial has basically been a political failure, right? Every movie ends with a triumph against the bad guys, which is quickly lost again. Every movie ends in a triumph against the bad guys, which is quickly lost again. And that that Luke that we see at the beginning, who's essentially exiled himself to an island alone to die, wants to be the last Jedi. I think he's the one who says, after me, this needs to end. This whole tradition needs to die. So it is kind of a movie about the death of hope or the attempted death of hope. And, you know, the next generations need to scare up some more remnants of hope to keep going on. Right. Well, and and speaking of generational transfer of power, uh, which a few critics have pointed out is sort of what the movie is about, um, we should note, and Steve referred to the fact that there is this sense here on the Tuesday morning when we're taping after the movie premiered that although it has gotten excellent reviews from critics, and an excellent cinema score of word of mouth of people coming out of the film. There's sort of a, ba- a poor fan rating on Rotten Tomatoes and a generalized sense of some internet griping and backlash to the movie. I, I will say I am skeptical of the narrative that is emerging, that fans are skeptical of this film and not responding to it. Like, I think the most plausible theory is this thing is so huge, so many people are responding to it, that there are some set of people who don't like it, which like makes sense because the audience for it is whatever it was, $450 million worth of movie going on the first weekend. Like that's just, yeah, there's gonna be some people who don't like it in there. I'm not, I'm not sure there's true meaning in it, but you know, maybe this is sort of the third generational transfer of power of Star Wars Hmm. watchers. And so there's bound to be some friction there too. I mean, it sounds Steve like you and I are responding to different threads in the movie, mostly. Oh, sure. I think, honestly, for me, the main selling point, the reason that I came out of this feeling energized about the Star Wars universe and wanting to go back to see it and take my daughter to see it and do things that Star Wars movies don't usually make me want to do, is just that it's making feels informed by both a lot of cinematic enthusiasm and sensibility, you know, a lot of energy to to create things that are visually interesting and that, that, the, 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 that their beauty in some way ties in with the themes the movie's trying to express, et cetera. I mean, essentially, it's just artfully made. And also the care and the compassion with which it thinks about handing over that generational baton, right? So Carrie Fisher is in this. It's the last Star Wars movie that she'll be in because she died shortly after filming. And it would have been really easy for Ryan Johnson to write that character out of the series in some dramatic way. For example, after Carrie Fisher was gone to go back and engineer some sort of cinematic apotheosis for her. And I don't know what's going to happen in the next episode of the trilogy, episode nine, which will be directed again by J.J. Abrams. There wasn't a sense that we had to be made to cheesily wring our handkerchiefs out over Mm -hmm. Carrie Fisher. And I appreciated that discretion. So on the older generational side, you have that kind of gravitas and the care with which he's treating those characters. But then on the younger side, there's a big new influx of energy. I mean, the opening scene of the movie, which like a lot of Star Wars, this begins on an action sequence, a kind of space fight. We have Oscar Isaacs Poe Dameron communicating by headpiece with Hux, who's this kind of militarized representative of the First Order of the the bad guys, played by Donald Gleason, and who has that kind of officious, humorless style that Star Wars bureaucratic villains will tend to do. And it becomes this almost trolling sequence where the Oscar Isaac character is pretending he's not hearing the transmissions 
and then deliberately getting Hux's name wrong to call him what appears to be General Hugs. And it's just this very funny sort of post-internet humor moment that, to me, kicked off the movie with tons of energy. And I know that some people are deploring that, you know, that makes the movie somehow too jokey or too unserious. But it was that combined with the enormous charm of Oscar Isaac as a performer really just dragged me straight in. And I wanted him to be a bigger part of the last movie. My big complaint about Force Awakens was more Isaac. And now we get some more. All right. Well, the movie is The Last Jedi. It's playing, you know, everywhere, but maybe the inside of your own eyeballs. Uh, Go see it. Uh, Check it out and tell us what you thought of it at Facebook.com slash Culture Fest. All right. Moving on. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Uh, Julia, before we go any further, uh, I'm guessing we have some business to attend to. Always, always. Uh, First up, we are very excited to announce that we are doing a special live show at the Sundance Film Festival with Represent. It's presented by Dropbox, and we'll have special guests and lots to talk about with Represent's host, Aisha Harris. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of January at 4.30 p.m. at Filmmaker Lodge in downtown Park City, Utah. Tickets are free, so they're going to go very, very fast. Register at slate.com slash live, and we'll see you there. Also, there is a live hit parade show with your pal and ours, Chris Malanfi, on January 18th at 7 p.m. at the Bell House in Brooklyn. There are still some tickets left. Ted Leo will be a guest. Get them while they last at slate.com slash live. Uh, I also want to mention another show that you should be listening to, Amicus. Amicus is Slate's show about the law, the courts, and, of course, the Supreme Court with Dahlia Lithwick. She explores court decisions, arguments, and the justices on the bench to shine a light on litigation in the time of Trump. Uh, The current episode includes a deep dive into the arguments in the case of the Colorado cake baker who refused to make a cake for a gay couple's wedding. And a lawyer who served in the Obama White House gives his take on the legal highs and lows of the Russia investigations. Check out Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. In Slate Plus today, we'll be answering a listener question from the trove we received for our forthcoming holiday show. We got so many, we couldn't get to them all, so we thought we'd tease with one in plus this time. To hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support Slate and the journalism that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join today. All right, onward. All right, moving on. Well, the guys behind the now defunct video service Vine have created a new and addictive thing. It's the live streamed quiz show HQ Trivia. Uh, It launched only back in August, but now has possibly, what, 300,000 active participants on uh, any given day. It uh, it's essentially a twelve question trivia contest. After each question, if you get it wrong, you're filtered out until it pyramids up to a few people who are going to win a cash prize. It's hosted by a uh, engaging stand up comedian named Scott Rogowski on other occasions by 
a Brit named Sharon Carpenter. It's fun. It's addictive. It's kind of cool. Um, uh, I, I, we're joined now by Forrest Wickman to tell us more about it because I think those adjectives may have exhausted my response to this app. But you love it, don't you, Forrest? Um, I love it. I also feel a little sheepish because it is now uh, like it's being milkshake ducked in real time during this during this segment, essentially. Um, it is now surrounded by controversy, which I did not know was going to happen when I you know, said two days ago that you guys should talk about this. Wait, Forrest, I'm sorry. Pause for a sec. What does milkshake duct mean? No, okay. I just swore to a friend on Twitter that I was going to get through 2017 without understanding what milkshake, oh, milkshake duct means. Oh, milkshake duct is great. Damn it's it, such Morris. a useful term. <laughs> I mean, people are now <laughs> saying like it should have been the word of the year. What? I guess they went with youthquake instead, well, which is a word I've Let's met. just pause and stipulate so, that every stupid dictionary does its own word of the year for a branding exercise yes. and they're all dumb. Right. Go ahead and uh, despoil my a, promise. A good publicity stunt for a, for a dictionary to do would have been to choose milkshake duck because it sums up basically everything that's been happening this year. So it's inspired by this tweet that's from this uh, Twitter account named P- Pixelated Boat. I think Pixelated Boat is like a comics artist. Um, but the tweet is basically, everybody loves milkshake duck, the duck who loves to drink milkshakes. Four minutes later, we are sorry to inform you that milkshake duck is racist. Which is just what happens all the time is that like something goes viral and then you it gets ruined because you discover in particular this year that it's like that person is a sexual predator or Wait, so no sexual harasser. are being thrown. There's no I was like my whole wow. mental apparatus of this was that there was some airborne milkshake and then you had to like duck to avoid being <laughs> hit by the milkshake. And it's like used, duck soup, the Marx Brothers joke. And then you somehow had failed to avoid being avoid ducking and then the milkshake splat i don't know the duck is i was an also wondering if but was the there... milk the same milkshake that brought the boys to the yard was involved somehow <laughs> like my mental explanation of this little phrase <laughs> apparently or is the wrong. duck drinking paul dano's milkshake but wait one more question about <laughs> yes. it i know this is a total sidebar but was there an actual meme, like a physical picture of a duck drinking a milkshake that inspired the whole thing? No. I mean, it was just a great tweet that, that summed up the <laughs> sort of viral news cycle, especially as it tends to play out, you know, in 2017. I'm sure somebody has photoshopped, you know, endless milkshake ducks since then. But. Okay. Okay. So just to, just to circle this back around. So what Forrest is referring to here is that the founders of this app – now reporting has come out that after they made Vine and Vine was acquired by Twitter, they left Twitter or were fired from fired. Twitter 18 months later for variously bad management or potential creepiness or potential uh, bad interactions with women, more of which I'm sure we'll learn in the days to come. But I think it's worth noting that part of why we had to have Forrest here to help explain to us this app experience to us is that it is one of the things that's unique about it, which is that it is an untime-shiftable cultural experience. Right. It it's a, a live game, which I don't think Steve mentioned. It's in an setup. appointment live game. And so when we decided to do this on Friday morning, there were actually only six games or six possibilities to prep this segment between Friday and our taping today. Uh, and so we needed to bring in someone. I had played it a few times before we decided to do it, but we needed to bring someone who had more ongoing experience with the game because uh, you couldn't actually do the thing that... I sense that we do sometimes, which is not prep our topics all weekend and then prep them all in like the 14 hour stretch between 10 p.m. and, you know, when we start taping the show. But I have to say, I mean, the unforgiving nature of this game occurring only twice a day on weekdays, once a day on weekends at the same time. You have to be there. It's appointment playing. 
to me made it very stressful. I put it on my calendar and immediately it populated for the next, you know, whatever year, <laughs> twice a day, you must play HQ Live. And it immediately began to feel horribly burdensome. So Forrest, tell us why it brings you lightness and not despair. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, uh, you know, in the prep for this segment, I saw that you guys circulated this article um, in The Verge about how HQ Trivia was being ruined because the stakes are way too high now because the prizes are now up to 10000 or $20,000 which is just the exact opposite of my experience. Like sometimes I see the push notification and it's like happening in two minutes. And I'm and I, you know, turn to my girlfriend I'm say, and I say, hey, do you want to play HQ Trivia? And then we pause the TV show or movie that we're watching and we play for a few minutes. We have zero expectation that we're going to win any money. We know that even if we do win money, and this is something that article really left out, um, even if you do win money, it's likely to be a pretty small sum because even though the prizes go up to 10000 or $20,000, uh, usually like hundreds of people win and then the prizes split. So I almost won $100 on Sunday night and I lost and that was the most stressed I've ever been playing this game. But like, eh, it was $100. Um, so that's part of why I like it is the low stakes. It feels like if you ever watched Who Wants to Be a Millionaire as a kid and kind of played along, now you get to literally uh, play along. Um, but you, And you don't have to like put any money in, we should say. And it's free um, to download the game. Yeah, it's a free game. There's no entry fee. Um, and it's fun to do with other people, like by far the best way to do well. And in fact, the reason I got to the final question um, on Sunday night is I played with a bunch of friends at dinner. We just all knew that it was like a 730 dinner. And so come 9pm, we'd probably all take out our phones. And we did. And we got really far because we were all able to collaborate, which is something I think even you, Dana, could appreciate that this is usually a collaborative game. It is true. And Julia and I played it together one night because I happened to be at her holiday party at nine when the inexorable hour came a calling. And uh, it was kind of a failed game, actually, because did you notice that on Saturday night there were technical difficulties and it wasn't really playable? We played about a third of it, I think. Well, and it didn't function as it usually does. And then I think they reset the game and did it again an hour later. But we were, we had been lost in revelry at that point. So we never quite completed a game together. But um, yeah, I mean, it is interesting. Like, I think we should talk a little bit about the user experience of the game yeah. because it is satisfying to, I mean, trivia is satisfying and trivia usually feels like it's a fogey pastime in fogey formats. But this is like nouveau trivia, except it's also very old school at the same time. Like basically you're just watching Jeopardy. It's on at a certain time. You're watching it in real time. Everybody's collectively, collectively watching it together. But you get to participate. Literally everyone gets to participate. I mean, it's really fun. One of the things that I love about this game is the elimination. Like once you answer the question, you get a screen that comes up, which shows how many people were eliminated. So, you know, 10% guessed correctly and 60% guessed the obvious red herring wrong answer and some randos chose the other one. Like you can kind of see what the collective impulse is about each question, which is kind of fun, adds a little bit of like user feedback um, and you can see where where you go right and where you go wrong. It's like very cl- when, when it's working crisply, it's very clear uh, and just a good user interface. On the other hand, that good user interface is buried within a terrible user interface, which is these horrible hosts who just give. I mean, they're sort you of. You don't like Scott? Actually, I think the host was the only high point. I only saw the one host. I prefer Sharon. I think Scott's just a doofus. I mean, I think, like, I also just play it on mute. Like, I definitely don't play it out loud. Do you yeah. play it out loud? Uh, Sometimes. I mean, if I'm at home, we'll play it out loud. It's sometimes helpful to, like, hear him read the question at the same time as you're There's just, it, like, but... endless stalling and doofery. 
uh, and the jokes. And then the other thing we should mention is that you can see in real time every like all 436,000 people's comments in this like flowing periscope like stream at the bottom of the page while you wait. So you're sort of watching just the idiotic things that people are saying. You just feel like you're participating in an act of mass idiocy where people are trying to prove that they're smart. And there's something about that juxtaposition that's fun. Well, but, the, but the comments flowing by, if they're trying to prove that people are smart, have, have a little bit of editing no, to that's, oh, that's no. the mass idiocy. Like fundamentally a trivia game, you're like, oh, I'm so smart. I know so many facts. Oh, right. But like clearly you're a teeming mass of losers who've interrupted whatever the hell you're doing to play this appointment game with another half million people, all of whom are like commenting like, Flags and <laughs> MAGA, like, like MAGA, yeah. and like stick out tongue emoji. L a m a o o o o o. Like it just it, you, you, the juxtaposition of this supposedly quasi intellectual pursuit and the just the stupidness of the format is delightful. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the the meta level on which I kind of enjoy it is that it just feels like for ten minutes every day I leave the present and enter Black Mirror? Like, did you guys not have that? Were you not kind of wowed by this piece (laughs) of technology when an actual... I mean, the first time somebody sent it to me, I assumed it was just spam and then I pulled it up and then there was somebody talking to me, but I was like, oh, you know, this is definitely pre-taped. And then he started shouting out the names of people I could actually see in the comments. And I was like, shit, this thing is... Is real? Were you guys? Did you guys not have that reaction? <laughs> well, the, at all? there's the liveness is without question to me the only novelty that makes it interesting. I mean, you know, I'm not a game person. I'm not really a sort of tech, not definitely not a technology game person. But yeah, something about the idea that it's like vaudeville in your phone, like there's just a live guy there doing banter and patter that has that is interacting with whatever is happening in the game. Is interesting, and I actually thought Scott Rogowski's patter was pretty good. I mean, yeah, compared to compared to the graphics of the game, which are just this ridiculous, goofy. It looks like an, an, the opening to an '80s children's show or something like that, right? With like fuchsia zigzags flying through the air. I mean, the whole thing seems kind of randomly, goofily put together. But there's something canny in the construction of the game itself, which almost instantly escalates from Homer Simpson level easy questions to things that really require a fair amount of real time logic. Yeah, I mean, the early questions always just remind me of Celebrity Jeopardy. Like, I keep w- waiting for them to actually ask what color ends in purple. <laughs> <laughs> but then once they launch up into that stratosphere, I mean, I got the first four, I think, last time I played, and none of the next, then I was out of the game, but I kept watching none of the next, however many there were, six. How many questions are there in all? Twelve. Twelve. None of the next ones were accessible at all. Steve, what was your experience playing the game? Uh, I was eliminated on the first question. <laughs> are you are you serious? Well, the the guy said something. The guy was kind of pattering at me quickly, and um, he said something about put your phone on airplane mode. I was like, what? <laughs> and but it seemed so authoritative that I went and put my phone on airplane <laughs> mode, and so I immediately missed the first question and fell off the first rung, which is an apt metaphor for my entire existence. But I stuck around anyway and thought it was fun. You can be a bystander. Um, but I would have been eliminated, I believe, on question three, which was asking which one of these is not a variant of the color blue. And I, it was there was one incredibly obscure color name. Oh, I remember those three heard. words. And I remember Rogowski saying they were enjoyable words to say. It was Glaucus, Zafre, yeah, gl- and Cocalico. Yeah, Whoa. Cocalico. Wow. I didn't know the word Cocalico. It's French for poppy. So I knew that wasn't blue. <laughs> it is it now? <laughs> um, anyway, so I was ding. I would have been dinged on three anyway, even if I hadn't dunced it up on the airplane mode move. But um, 
uh, I think it's fun and diverting. I didn't get into it enough to see why it would be so super addictive, but um, um, but well, uh, not yeah, not it's unappealing. Just a rare experience. I mean, we have so many mass experiences on the internet. Uh, but there's not a ton of mass simultaneity, right? There's a sense of like, oh, so many people have seen this thing and this video has gone viral and something's being shared everywhere and everybody's seen it. Like that's very familiar at this point. But mass simultaneity is rare and when you get it right is intriguing. And I think people tried to do this around Facebook Live. There was the BuzzFeed video about how many rubber bands does it take to squeeze a watermelon in half in the sense that like something is happening right now and you are seeing it. Um, it's the app has kind of bottled that and turned that into something uh, that's fun and that's appointment viewing um, in a way that feels retro and charming. I think the question of whether these allegations about the founders end up scuttling the app and its future chances remain kind of open. I mean, the the baseline question I would have is a investor prior to even learning about this is like, what's the financial model here again? Like Scott. Uh, has not, t- to my knowledge, although I, as I said, I'm watching it on mute most of the time, started reading ads in his patter. I suppose that's the model. You've got eyeballs, you've got attention. Eventually, he'll, you know, probably be doing host reads for Bowl and Branch as well. Um, <laughs> or maybe they'll flash up visual ads, or maybe they'll have people pay a subscription fee. I mean, I, it's just unclear. Like, they're apparently going for a $100 million valuation which I guess the ability to attract half a million people to your app three months in, twice a day, and maybe worth something. Uh, you know, investors may decide it's not worth the trouble based on the based on the management flaws that these founders have exhibited in the past. Uh, and which we should also note they demonstrated in an incredibly hilarious article that I would commend you all to go read. I mean, tragically hilarious. But uh, as the app began to gain steam, I think back in October, um, Someone at the Daily Beast profiled Scott and, you know, called him up, interviewed him, had a bunch of quotes like, what's it like to be a new app sensation? And then contacted the company for comment. And the company, the one of the founders, like, freaked out and threatened to fire. He said, if you run the profile, we will fire Scott. Scott being, like, at this point, Scott had become a meme in himself and, and like, the face of the app and yet for no reason. And then the founder, this uh, co-founder, this guy, uh, Russ Yusupov, uh, proceeded to kind of mansplain to the journalist that, like, they couldn't run this without permission. And I, I wrote and it, down... it hadn't be che- been checked with their brands or something. Oh, yeah. Scott <laughs> Scott was, like, they just asked... Uh, it was supposed to be the puffiest of puff pieces, and they asked the question of, like, oh, so are you famous yet? Do you get recognized down the street? And Scott was like, you know, I love that I can still walk down the street and, you know, get my favorite salad at Sweet Green. And, and this guy, the co-founder, Russ Yusupov, was like, he cannot mention Sweet Green in the article. We do not have a d- branding deal with, sque- <laughs> with Sweet Green. And then they asked him... Uh, can Scott mention that he loves trivia and loves bringing people joy? And the co-founder actually answered, Scott cannot say that he loves trivia <laughs> and loves bringing people joy. We do not have a business partnership with joy. <laughs> I mean, I, at that point, I kind of loved it. Like, I, it did not bother my uh, conscience at all to continue playing this app knowing that it was run by one of the guys from Silicon Valley. Like, I just, meaning Silicon Valley, the HBO show. Like, I just kind of assumed that and it seemed relatively harmless and so it's kind of since then when it's like proceeded into this sexual, right. sexual They're misconduct idiotic, ter- idiotic managers in a different way and I keep talking about the founders here I should be clear they they are Russ Yusupov and Colin Kroll both of them were with Vine 
both went with Vine to Twitter when Twitter bought Vine. Uh, both were fired by Twitter fairly precipitously after that acquisition. Uh, there have been reports of bad management, and particularly with regard to Kroll, uh, perhaps sexually inappropriate behavior. And these are all allegations that have come out. The reporting is fairly new at this point, so I don't think we have the full picture yet, but that's the that's the latest. All right. Well, the, sh- uh, the app is called HQ Trivia. I'm curious how many of you have tried it and what your experiences were. Did you get dinged almost instantly like me, or are you a bug-eyed addict like Forrest Wickman? Come to facebook.com slash culturefest and let us know. Okay. Thanks, Forrest. Thanks for coming in. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. They charm and amuse us, they sicken and annoy us, they bore us, they linger for a while on Facebook, and then they die, or rather retreat back into the cybernetic ooze unless called upon again. So writes Lauren Michelle Jackson in the December 7th Atlantic Monthly about memes. And um, Dana, we're going to talk about memes, but I mean, in a way, what we're talking about is how hard it is to talk about memes and write about them intelligently. Surely one reason has to be that they're, in a way, their principle, they're their defining feature is simply that they're viral, right? Isn't that isn't that what really makes a meme a meme? Is that I mean, the whole metaphor is to genes. It's some somehow the mindless replication of an image or an idea um, is, is the basis of it. And so, mindlessness and and replication, in a way, defy analysis. In a way, in, in, if, if I'm onto something here, it sort of happens um, like a disease happens or some kind of a fad and then disappears. How do you subject that to analysis? What's your relationship to memes? Yeah, well, one thing I did pick up from that article, which was, I agree, a little bit rambling, didn't really quite get at the the dark magic of, of how memes sweep through culture and take us over and then disappear, is that the word meme was coined by Richard Dawkins in a book in 1976, The Selfish Gene. I didn't realize that its first usage, what did actually have to do with genetics, as I understand it, and maybe the way, I'm not sure to what extent, I think he was sort of associating from the DNA genetic world into the cultural world about how, you know, ideas are replicated through generations of culture. I don't know. I haven't read The Selfish Gene. But the idea that the word, the the invention of the word preceded the invention of the internet was really interesting to me in itself. And then also, of course, the etymology of meme, it comes from the same thing as mime, a, a meme comes from the Greek word for imitation. It's something that can be imitated. It's that which is imitable, right? And so maybe that's some sort of key to helping to understand the art of memes as they exist in in social media now. In, in my own life, because I'm a Twitter person and not a Facebook person, I see the Twitter transformation of memes, which happens obviously really fast, I would assume faster than things spread around on Facebook where you've got more text to deal with. And while I rarely, rarely, if ever, participate in these meme-sharing frenzies that sweep the internet, I always find them amusing and usually want them to have a slightly longer life than than they actually do. I mean, one that I can think of recently, which is the, I guess it's been called the boyfriend walking with girlfriend while eyeing other girl meme. If you're on Twitter at all, you know what I'm talking about. This stock photo of these three white people walking along a street having this sort of uh, suggested love triangle moment um, has been 
re-co-opted and reformed and sort of turned into a meta meme in so many ways over the last several months. And I still, even just last night, saw a new version of it that was something that made me laugh um, because it was it's grabbing onto some very, very basic feeling, which is the fear of missing out, right? The feeling that whatever you're experiencing can't be as good as the as the impossible thing that just walked by. And uh, and that's just a very wide open template to plug different stories into. Yeah, I mean, I was struck. So so the article that we read in preparation for the segment was about meme death. And at the beginning, it said, of course, one argument for why memes don't last forever is that people grow tired of them. But actually, and then it goes on for a lot longer and does not, in my view, propound a more persuasive (laughs) argument for why memes die than the fact that sometimes people grow tired of them. Um, But I also felt sympathetic. I mean, the, the, the author is doing, you know, excavating a bunch of interesting Research connecting memes to the way in which jokes spread. Like, I was full of sympathy and empathy, and it made me think about the question of, like, why are memes so hard to explain, think about, and analyze? Like, they're one of my most interesting experiences of the year was my mother asking me to explain to her what a meme is, and I couldn't. It took me 75 minutes and like many <laughs> pauses to like show her my phone and explain that it's sort of like a new unit of meaning. Like sometimes it's a joke in and of itself that gets passed along, but sometimes, you know, sometimes it functions almost more like an emoji. And then I had to explain to her what that was. <laughs> well, and is there always an image, right? When we were just in the last segment, unfortunately, having Milkshake Duck explained to us by Forrest. And thus ruining your ignorance and my <laughs> much more beautiful idea of what it had derived from. Yeah, I mean, both both you and I, Julia, assumed that there was some visual artifact of a duck drinking a milkshake or a person ducking while a milkshake was thrown at them, that there was some, some physical thing that then became the source of this joke, when in fact, that counted as a meme, even though it was literally just a joke, someone's imagined scene that was passed around from user to user. Right. A bit of found text that that sort of accrues meaning over time uh, as it spreads. But look at us. Here we are. We're falling into the stew, <laughs> the meme analysis stew. Mm. It's impossible to be smart about memes. Steve, be it, smart I, about it memes. Is imp- I, I think the only way to be smart about them is to acknowledge you can't be. I mean, the, the Dana nailed it with the Richard Dawkins illusion, right? That's the origin of the word meme. And Dawkins' whole theory about genes is that our understanding of ourselves as human beings is completely irrelevant to this mindless biological algorithm that underpins all of life, which is just the propagation of the genetic code, um, the selfish gene. And you know, our own attitudes towards ourselves, our lives, our loved ones, all of them are epiphenomenal to this replicating you know, algorithmically, mindlessly replicating thing called the gene. And so a meme in some ways is, is, is exactly on that same principle. It's only defining feature is its replication, the fact of its replication. And its mindlessness is a feature of that replication. And of its success, that's the important thing, is that it's not something that people consume, think about, reflect upon, um, and incorporate into their experience of reality in the way they do would a work of art or even a freaking sporting event or whatever. It's It's got a kind of, it, it, it's, it's, it's just the kind of hit, quick hit and then, and then it replicates. And, 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 and if it doesn't replicate, it's not a meme, right? Like the only, 
only defining intrinsic feature is is replication and and replication and and actual understanding and self-understanding are two are antithetical to one another with memes as with genes so buttons so there you are i have no idea what to say about that but in the same way that I, I have not read The Selfish Gene, but in the same way that I push back reflexively against Dawkins' kind of extreme materialism in his, his current mode of being an evangelical atheist who goes around screaming at people who believe in anything that they're stupid, I mean, I have to take some exception to the idea that a meme is completely analogous to a piece of genetic material. The nature of, of memes is not just that they're passed on identically like a, a piece of a chromosome to the next generation, but that they're doctored and, and redeployed and played with and made different mm-hmm. by each user. I mean, crying Jordan, <laughs> crying Michael Jordan, which has been one of the most durable memes on the internet, I, although I qu- don't quite understand its extreme longevity. It seems a little bit like it's making fun of Michael Jordan, which makes me sad. But I think part of the reason crying Michael Jordan has been so powerful is that it's sort of endlessly redeployed deployable in in different circumstances. Those redeployments are valued based on their the, the creativity that each user invests them with. So I do think that there's more agency in the passage of memes than that mm-hmm. simply we are all ruled by pictures of crying Michael Jordan that wants to replicate itself whether we care or not. Well, but I mean, Jackson actually argues persuasively in the Atlantic piece that although crying, Mike, crying Michael Jordan is a meme with a very long life, it actually has fallen out of circulation a little bit in the last year or so because... Because the association of like one of the most prominent and beloved black Americans of all time with loss uh, at this particular moment in American history no longer seems like something light and hilarious that you can toss around uh, like so much Internet flotsam and jetsam like it, it, it has taken on different meaning. I mean, I think here, here would be my stab at the why the genetic analogy is potentially useful, which is there's the there's the interplay between the fundamentals of the thing that is being replicated and its suitability for the environment, right? So the memes that are not suited to the moment must die and the memes that are suitable to the moment die. And in fact, just going back to Milkshake Duck, like that's actually maybe not super powerful in terms of the fundamental uh, underlying material. It's just somebody's joke. It's just text. There's not even the hilarious gif of someone covered in gooey dairy (laughs) that I conjured in my mind and assumed was at the core or the quacking slurper that I dreamed of (laughs) Uh, the the, the alt the alt better memes that Dana and I uh, dreamed it's just text but because the text is so suited to this moment of the discovery of the horrible things done by or believed by prominent people that's just that is the tenor of the moment and it is the most powerful little bit of internet flotsam that captures that thread of the moment. And so it gains steam for a while. So, you know, the classic genetic story about the moths and how the moths with the gene that made their wings dark uh, thrived and propagated during the Industrial Revolution because they could be camouflaged against the soot-covered trees of industrial Manchester or whatever the hell, um, and how the moths of a prior century favored the genetic predisposition towards the white fluttery wings that allowed them to be camouflaged against the unbesmirched birch trees or whatever. It's like that, but for internet culture. Voila, I explained it. (laughs) Hooray, can we be done? (laughs) Never talk about memes. Well, can I just say, I don't know how you guys personally feel about memes, but I actually, though, as I say, I rarely participate in these games. I have a lot of affection for a good meme game. I like seeing some ridiculous image that gets picked up from the flowing ephemera of the day and see it sort of 
get turned into a, a, a space for improvisation. I think that can be really fun and freeing. And I don't feel like memes are, are just sort of controlling scraps of self-replicating viral information that control us all. I mean, of course, I'm not talking about the more dangerous political usage of memes. And if we started getting into Pepe the Frog and the role that memes have played in the last election, we could start to get really dark. But Yeah, but I think the thing that, that the pure genetic analogy leaves out is that what's fundamentally at the crux of that underlying material of the meme itself and the however it's adapting itself to the moment uh, is like linguistic and creative ingenuity of the people propagating the memes. Right. And so there's a lot, if you are a person who enjoys lin- linguistic play and visual play, like there's a lot to revel in. All right. Well, um, I'd be very curious to know what our listenership makes of memes, the relationship to genes and the peppered moth of Manchester Mancunian England <laughs> and the general soup that one falls into when one tries to apply the intellect to a fundamentally non-intellectual mimetic uh, phenomenon. Um, anyway, come to facebook.com slash culture fest. All right, moving on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, because the big cultural event of this moment was the opening of The Last Jedi Star Wars movie last weekend, if you go online right now and Google Ryan Johnson interview, the the director of The Last Jedi, he's running around the world giving interviews about what it was like to make this huge blockbuster phenomenon, by far the biggest film he's ever made. I want to endorse something I came across in my search for various Ryan Johnson interviews to uh, to prep for our, our talk about Star Wars, which is an interview that... Ryan Johnson does with Paul Thomas Anderson about Phantom Thread, the upcoming Paul Thomas Anderson movie that's getting released on Christmas Day. So both of these guys, both these directors are huge cinephiles, big fans of each other's work, have tons to say about movie making and the current state of Hollywood. And so they just talk to each other for about half an hour on this podcast called The Director's Cut, which is, I believe, a product of the Director's Guild of America. I didn't know this podcast existed. I don't know if it always has conversations this interesting. But the idea of putting these two guys together, Paul Thomas Anderson and Ryan Johnson, and having them just talk about movie making was a really great one. And it's nice to hear Ryan Johnson, who seems really exhausted in that whole publicity circuit for for Star Wars, just kind of be able to to dig down about something that he's interested in. So that's my endorsement, the interview between Ryan Johnson and PTA on the podcast, The Director's Cut. Oh, that's cool. Um, Julia, what do you have? I'm going to do one of those things where I endorse the blue sky. Uh, If you are a person who enjoys pop music of the sort that I historically enjoy. You are a big fan of the Carly Rae Jepsen album, Emotion. You've been listening to it for years. You know all the songs. You know that it's great. If, like me, you are a fan of such music, but you are a busy working mother of two, just doesn't always get around to things, you may have only recently discovered a great song from that album. Uh, The song is Fever, and it is a song of forlorn, lost love and yearning, and it's a Fucking great track. If, like me, you haven't gotten around to emotion yet, ha ha ha, robot joke here, uh, 
check out Fever. It's a good starter track. It will lure you in and entice you to actually download the whole album and enjoy it. Mm. Carly Rae. I have so many friends who are huge fans of that album, so maybe I'll make it my Christmas wrapping listening. I think even you... Uh, in between madrigals would enjoy it. <laughs> oh yeah, I love a good pop song. I still, I'm still happy when "Call Me Maybe" comes on on a dance floor. I, I it, it <laughs> is much more "Call Me Maybe" ishly addictive than than "Cut to the Feeling," which actually I think is a fairly weak CRJ track. <laughs> Stop out, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's is a that meme. The you memed it. Dana. You memed it. <laughs> Dana meme. Uh, Dana, can you explain that joke to yeah. listeners of ours who aren't <laughs> freaking nerdy and losers as I am? Really? Do you want me to explain your joke? Well, only because people like Dana. Dana endorsed Stabat Mater, um, what two, three weeks ago, and so that was my funny little joke. Okay, moving on. Joke um, death achieved. Yes, exactly. The the meme lived and died. In, a single breath. We know how um, the memes died. Steve killed them. <laughs> <laughs> one by one, baby. All right. Uh, so I finally, after what is it, 10 years of doing the show, figured out what the key to endorsing something is. You just pick the thing that you liked most that previous week or meant most to you that previous week. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm I'm fucking opening the door so wide for you, Julia. Come on, don't let me down. <laughs> Spike the volleyball, Julia. Spike the volleyball. Oh, I don't understand what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> Just something fucking condescending and mean. Come oh, on. I thought I thought my uh huh was condescending and mean. I thought it was oh, sufficient. Okay. It was an understated. Uh, yeah, I. It was an own goal to begin with. Why? <laughs> Like yeah. the old, the own goal. Uh-huh. All right, I'll move on. Um, the thing I enjoyed most this previous weekend and meant most to me was um, there's an economic uh, professor, uh, economics professor at Oxford named Simon Wren Lewis. Let me spell it W R E N dash Lewis. Uh, anyway, he um, he blogs very very intelligently in general. And if you have any interest in what is going on in our world, vis a vis. Um, you know, money, economics, and their relationship to politics, Brexit and Trump in particular. I mean, he's just absolutely a, a must read. He's brilliant. Um, I don't think of him as an especially left-wing person at all. And so to those n- ninnies who I will not name who claim neoliberalism doesn't exist, I would um, hurry to uh, Ren Lewis's work because uh, here's a very serious and very, very, very um, technically adept person who not only accepts that neoliberalism exists, but is using words now like plutocracy in its direct threat to democracy. And I do think this is a very big change. There were a lot of words during the you know high neoliberal era that really disappeared from mainstream vocabulary, like rentier class, rent extraction, plutocracy. Um, you know, even to a degree, inequality, which we were all aware of, uh, somehow didn't get its full hearing into, to, until a few years ago. Anyway, he wrote a blog post called "If We Treat Plutocracy as Democracy, Democracy Dies," and it's very much about um, the wicked synergy between Brexit and Trump, money and the flow of information as it currently exists in a sort of daily, you know, Rupert Murdoch-dominated Anglosphere, or really. I don't even know if he really mentions Murdoch, but he certainly mentions Fox and the and the Daily Mail. 
and it's just brilliant. And, and this is what we've come to, which is essentially mainstream main, mainstream Oxford economists now need to use a word like plutocrat and plutocracy, a highly loaded, almost quasi-Marxist term in order to discuss reality as we're living it. And I think regardless of what your politics are, more and more and more people, especially young people, are being driven to the left because of the looting and the rapaciousness and, and really total lack of shame of the right. Um, and I think uh, to the extent that one wants at one's disposal an ability to critique with analytic power the kinds of things that the Republicans are doing here and the Tories are doing there um, without also losing a degree of um, civility, someone like Simon Ren Lewis is a, a brilliant go-to uh, choice. And this one in particular is a great place to start. So if we treat plutocracy as democracy, democracy dies by Simon Ren Lewis. Uh, Julia, thank you. Steve, I got to say, that sounded like a great endorsement. It did not sound markedly different than past week's endorsements. What what have you been doing for the for the last 10 years? <laughs> I don't know. It was just one of those things. It was just seemed so simple in a way. It was it was I was just racking my brains. I was thinking about it kind of in the in the wrong way in some way. Like like you know, what's some extraordinary whatever. I don't know. And it was just the simple thing. Well, what I just you know, it's just one of those I was being mindful, Julia. I know that in robot land, you know, the circuitry functions there in, is no mind. You know, with, with perfect efficiency no matter what. But it was just like a mindful moment. Exactly. Um, you know, there was just a, a mindful moment where I was like, wait a second. What was what was the thing that really meant the most to you this past week, sort of regardless of what it was? And it was like this blog post. Was oh, well, really, I just so. love that, like, when you let your... Uh, nope. aspirational guard down and you're not trying to find the perfect most um, brilliant thing you still en end up with an extremely distinguished uh, endorsement so no fronting with Steve I like it Steve before you do our outro we have a, a sweet little tag to tag onto this show can I can I tag it tag away yeah uh, we want to offer our heartfelt uh, culture Gab Fest congratulations and mazel tavari to sometime Slate Culture Gab Fest producer Zach Dinerstein and his brand new fiance Lisa Tauber. The whole time that Zach worked with us, he did not divulge that apparently our show played some small role in his and Lisa's courtship. And they just in the last month or so became engaged. And we are so delighted to hear it and delighted to have helped in some small way love bloom between Zach and Lisa. Dana, will you read a little bit from what Zach sent us about uh, how he and Lisa found each other? Yes, this is from Zach's lovely note about his courtship with his bride-to-be, which involves us in a very charming way that we're honored about. We met on OkCupid a little over two years ago. She was a book editor at Random House at the time, and her favorite podcast was, and still is, The Culture Gab Fest. I was producing at Slate and had filled in for The Gab Fest maybe twice. We met at the Owl Farm, a quiet bar in Park Slope, and I mentioned that I had worked for the Culture Gab Fest. When I said this, she completely freaked out and started talking about how much she loves the show and how she finds out about all the things from that podcast and how she and her friends can't wait to listen every week. I got to look cool and mention how fun and creatively inspiring it was to work with Dana, Steve, and Julia. Oh, thanks, Zach. He then says, later on, it's been two years since our first date. I proposed to her this past Thanksgiving, and I'm so happy she said yes. So in a non-trivial way, the Culture Gab Fest is responsible for our first date going so well, and by extension, our entire relationship. He's giving us so much credit. So thanks, guys. Uh, congratulations, Zach and Lisa. Lisa, thank you for listening to our show. Uh, we wish you guys all the best and happiness for years to come. It's just so heartening to know that all of this goofy 
garbled blabbing we do every week goes out into the world and means something to people and maybe brings them together. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. Uh, Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You'll find an entire roster of like and unlike shows, a really wonderful roster, at panoply.fm. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf, and we'll see you soon. Yeah.